So open up your Bible to, to Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5. And we're just working our way through the whole book. And we'll end at some point, probably by the end of the year. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> but Romans 5, 1 through 11 is our text today. Victory in Jesus is what I'm calling this message. Let's read the text and then we'll pray. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also boast in tribulation, knowing that tribulation or trials produce, produces patience. Patience produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. While we were yet weak, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, being now justified by his blood, shall we be saved from wrath through him? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Furthermore, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father and God, we have come now to the ethics of your law word, seeking guidance for the days ahead. We know that in Christ we drink from the fountains of living water, that being the satiation of the Holy Spirit. So help us, we pray, to learn, to be changed, to grow and be encouraged. And if there is any affliction we need, may you be gracious to walk with us through it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, it's generally agreed upon that the Apostle Paul, he starts a new section here. Romans chapter 1, 1 through 4 serve as basically a single cohesive unit, generally it's agreed upon, and that lays the groundwork for the coming chapters ahead. But just because we have this cordoned off section of Scripture doesn't mean that the next chapters don't fit at all. Uh, there were no chapter breaks in the original letter that Paul would have written. And chapter breaks and verse numbers didn't come until the Middle Ages. It's not as if, for example, Paul in the first four chapters is, is playing the justification game and he's really you know, hammering home on that. And now he's playing a different game. He's going to talk about sanctification. Rather, it's this edifice. Paul is building this edifice that requires us to walk in different, room, in different rooms, observing the foundation, we observe the crown molding, uh, and, and basically we view the whole rest of the architecture along the way. So Romans, Romans 5 through 8 is that next section. Romans 5 through 8 is the next big section. And it serves to be this next portion of the building tour, as it were. And once he gets to chapter 8, Paul then starts talking crazy talk. <laughs> he talks about the transformation of the world, which is where the King Jesus gospel that he mentions in the first few verses is always going anyway. So today I want to talk about victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus, uh, the Nike. You've heard the phrase uh, Nike is a Latin uh, word, the goddess of victory in the Roman world. So we have Jesus who is the real Nike 
and the fake false gods of victory that we see in our world. And we want to talk about what it is he accomplished for the salvation of the world. And not only what he accomplished, what it is that we are supposed to do about it. Paul, faith, Paul will show, has this remarkable consequence. Faith has remarkable consequences, not just for personal transformation, like we usually think, uh, of the individual, which is true and good enough, but it's also transformation for all men and women and children and all of man's institutions. God intends to sanctify history, not condemn it. That's what we talked about last week. So having drilled down on the issue of justification by faith alone, and having explored the connection to Father Abraham, which is what we saw last week in Romans 4, we're now going to tackle these next 11 verses. And honestly, in one sense, this section is a quick rest stop. It's, it's almost like a breather of sorts. Remember that Romans is deeply theological, uh, deeply dense in terms of philosophy, theology. Some of the things that Paul writes are undermining the Roman worldview, the Greco-Roman worldview at that. So it's very dense. And frankly, this section is like us coming up for air. <laughs> We're just going to take a breather. It's a very comforting section of Scripture. Uh, it has some basic truths. If you grew up in the church, you might, be you might remember the Romans Road. And we have Romans 5, 8 there. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, that's part of the Roman, the Roman Road when you would evangelize someone. We're sinners. Christ died. You make that connection. So we're going to come up for air. And as we'll see, soon find out, we'll be plunged back in next week. So let's look at the passage, and we're just going to summarize what we find. So in verses 1 and 2, we have this dense statement, which includes a past event, a present result, and a future promise. He speaks of a past event, a present result, and a future promise. We have been, he says, justified by faith. That is, we have been brought into the righteousness and vindication that we get in the courtroom of God on the basis of faith and only faith. That's kind of his segue into the next section. All this stuff we've talked about, Romans 1.1 through the end of chapter 4, therefore we've been justified by faith. So now, he says in verse 1, we experience peace with God. And we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So have been justified, that's the past fact, that's the, the, the thing that grounds it all. And now we have this present result. What's the present result? Well, we have peace with God and we have access to this grace in which we stand. Now, so all of that is a now present reality through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, noted in, in here in verses 1 and 2, we have this future promise, this hope of glory. The hope of glory. Now, note the emphasis here. God's justice has now brought about peace. God's justice has brought about peace. It was, it was Caesar Augustus in history who established the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Uh, which was built on justitia, the justice, the, the justice of what the Pax Romana would bring. Uh, it's sort of like in the vein of Alexander the Great, who would just, you know, go conquer everyone. Uh, Caesar Augustus and many of the Roman uh, uh, emperors would do the same sort of thing. They would go to a nation and say, 
hey, see this army behind me? We're here to bring peace. So you either surrender or you die. Oh gee, thanks for those great, wonderful options. We'll submit to the peace of Rome. <laughs> sure, why not? And Rome was able to quickly conquer the known world because of that sort of attitude. So there's a different sort of, Paul, Paul's obviously drawing this stark contrast between King Jesus and the world's lords. So all of this is under, undermining it underneath all of these texts. So there's a different sort of justice and there's a different sort of peace that comes from the world's creator and is established in Christ, who is the world's true Lord. And it's also worth noting that we stand in this grace. We stand in this grace. Uh, we don't grovel in the grace of God. We stand in it. Uh, Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15.1. I'm going to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, the, the thing in which you stand. It's, all, it's as if God has brought us into his house of grace and we're standing here. We're here. We stand here unashamed. We've been cleaned up, given the righteousness of Christ, and now we stand in this, in this grace. And the reason I bring this up is because in normal Jewish language, the temple is where you meet with God and you stand in worship. So the true temple is Jesus and the church that he's building, his body. So that's sort of just some underhanded language that Paul uses there as well. The last phrase there in verse 2 is very interesting. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We've already seen that all of humankind in Adam, which will be next week as well, has fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. It's interesting that Paul would use that language. He could have said, all men have just sinned and broken God's law, which is kind of what you know, John the Apostle tells us in, in, the, in the first letter of John. But he says that sinners fall short of something, and that something is the glory of God. There's this standard of glory and righteousness, and sinners fall short of it. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So this is a reference to Adam's sin. When Adam sinned in the garden, he lost his, his glory. So what Adam lost, Christ has regained. And that's going to be the thrust of the next section in chapter 5, 12 and onwards. So in Christ, what, when we think of glory, we, we tend to think of this incohate uh, nebulous experience. Um, I like to call it floating on clouds with naked baby angels. And that idea of heaven being this odd bliss, whereas glory is much more rooted in, in purpose, in dominion, in calling, in covenant, in those things. So Adam lost it, Christ regained it. And what did Christ regain? Well, he regained our vice regency. We were called to be God's priests and kings. We, we as humans, when we're restored um, to the way God intends, the whole creation is liberated. That's the whole point. This is the glory of God and man's purpose and calling. If you are in Christ, dear friends, you have been brought into the glory of God. And that glory isn't just this magic, this undefined, let's try to nail jello to the wall type of thing. It's, it's actually specific. It's specific in that you have been given a calling and now you are restored to that calling and purpose. So in verses 3 through 5, we find that the, the road to glory has some potholes and snarls along the way. Our 
present status with God is about peace, yes, but it's not a pie-in-the-sky, ease-and-comfort type of peace. It's also about how to handle suffering, what James tells us to do. The birth pangs of God's redemption of the world are sometimes difficult. There's, there's suffering. We, he says, ought to boast, that is, rejoice in tribulation. It's funny that Paul, <laughs> here are Roman Christians who are suffering under the boot of the state, and Paul could have said, well, uh, yeah, things are hard. You should just try. Have you tried complaining more? <laughs> Maybe that'll fix it. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He says rejoice in it. Boast in the suffering. It's as though Paul says when things get bad, you should be singing and rejoicing louder. That's counterintuitive, usually. But that's what he says. Rejoice in your suffering. Why? Why? Why would we boast in it? Well, what does suffering do? Follow the train of thought, he says there in verses 3 through 5. Because it gives you patience or endurance. Patience gives you character. And that word character simply means this. It's almost like this virtuous resilience and sturdiness. Uh, I just imagine um, the other day we, we decided it would be fun to watch some videos on the TV about hurricanes and tsunamis and you know normal homeschool life. And, and, and there, if you remember, I think it was in 2011, the tsunami that hit Japan, and some video that came out of there was just astounding. I mean, water moving buildings, just effortless. I, I, that image sticks with me. When, when, when he says that patience gives way to character, it's a sturdiness. It's being able to withstand anything that comes your way. And then when you've gone through that cycle, he says the outcome is true hope, not fatalism, sort of the Buddhist, Eastern, mystical, fatalist, well, it's just going to happen anyway, what can we possibly do about it? It's not fatalism, it's not despondency. When trials come, despondency ought not to be the first thing we leap to. And it's also not a shallow optimism, where we, oh, I know you're going through a difficult time, but It'll get better. Thanks for that piece of wisdom. <laughs> Appreciate it. It's not any of that. It's hope. It's the rock-solid promises of God. When you go through tribulation, you get patience. When you get patience worked in you, you have character. You're sturdy. You're stable. And once that's worked itself out, in the end, you have a rock-solid hope standing on the promises of God. And hope, verse 5 says, doesn't disappoint it's nothing to be ashamed of because this type of hope won't let us down. We can speak all day of the glories of Christ, uh, the glories of God in Christ, yet, paradoxically, we can also walk through very difficult times in life. Things can be very difficult. And we celebrate, we rejoice in that suffering because God is always using it for the same purpose of giving us, his son, remember his son suffered. The same reason is there. Why? To, to love us, to transform us, to tra uh, transform us and fashion a people for the good of the world. You don't go through suffering so that you can just feel good about yourself. You go, you go through suffering so that it molds you and shapes you so that you can be standing straight up in a world where there's a whole lot of tsunamis coming in and out. 
the down payment of this love, the down payment of the love God has given us in Christ, of this calling, is the giving of the Holy Spirit to our hearts, he says here in verse 5. He's given us the Holy Spirit in our hearts. In all of Jewish literature, scour the Old Testament. You can look at the Apocrypha. You can look at other texts, the scroll, the Qumran scrolls, whatever. In all of Jewish literature, the coming of the Spirit, just look at the prophecy of Joel that Peter quotes in Acts 2. When the, when the Spirit comes, it's the dawning of a new age. It's the age of the Messiah, the age of justice and righteousness and peace, the age of the kingdom of God. Habakkuk 2.14, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's not something that hasn't already begun. It has in Christ because the tomb is empty. So he continues in verses 6 through 8, and he explains the centrality of the death of Christ. He argues that in our state of weakness, that uh, verse 8, while we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? What did Christ do in the middle of history when everything was broken? He died. He died, he says. The absolute degeneracy and wickedness which marks all of mankind, what we saw in, in chapter 1, is the focus of Christ's atonement. While we were sinners, Christ died. So Paul reasons, <laughs> well, let me back up and say this. Christ can only die for sinners because that's all there is to die for. He, he says in, in other language, I didn't come to call the healthy but the sick. And the implication being, well, actually, there aren't really any healthy. Even the Pharisees who <laughs> thought themselves to be quite healthy, they thought themselves to be quite capable of being doctors, and they found themselves un incapable of being that. So, so in other words, Paul says in the middle here, when, when all we had was a condition of utter helplessness, Christ died. So he reasons thusly. Not many die for a righteous person, a worthy person, he says. Rarely do you see that. Someone might die for a good person. Some scholars think he's talking about a, benef a benefactor. Uh, Luke, Theophilus was Luke's benefactor, so would Luke have died for Theos Theophilus? Maybe, maybe. Those things sometimes happen. But here we find God in Christ dying for the ungodly, the unrighteous, the filthy, the rotten, sin-stinking sinner. Rarely does someone die for a good person. No one dies for a terrible person. No one. But Jesus did, does. And what does God demonstrate in verse 8? His agape love. His self-giving, self-sacrificial love. And the point is this. God has freely and gladly given us a love far beyond any sort of love a human being made in the image of God but fallen could ever give. Could ever give. So verse 9 says, how much more? How much more if we are justified by His blood, the hard part's over. <laughs> how does God justify the ungodly? That's the perennial question in the Old Testament. Well, easy. God does it. So if, if we're justified by His blood... How much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God against sin? So Paul, he's, he's thinking in, this, in these terms. The present issue was hard. The future is easy. The, 
people say, how could we possibly fulfill the Great Commission? How could we possibly see the world transform? How could America ever possibly be redeemed? That's easy. The hard part was the fact that Christ died and justified the ungodly. That's the hard part. The easy part is Christ, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the scriptural illustration is that the enemies of Christ are a footstool. <laughs> Jesus won the victory, kicked back, and the Ottoman that he chose was his enemies. That's brilliant. It should probably make us chuckle a little bit, one would think. So from top to bottom, start to finish, God has done it all in Christ. The victory is his. And yet another image, image surfaces here in verse 10. Pauline theology is a Christological work of art with many shades, many perspectives, many nuances. Here we see the doctrine of reconciliation. And he says that all humans are at enmity with God and yet affected from God's sole initiation, remember God, we love because God loved us first, affected from God's sole initiation, God took the initiation. What happens out of that is our state of reconciliation. There's an, another how much more there in verse 10, how much more that phrase stands out again. It, the death of Christ reconciles us, how much more the surprising hope of resurrection. If the death did this, then how much greater is his resurrection? That's his, his logic here. And in verse 11, we rejoice and we boast yet again, but not in ourselves, rather in God, whose Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has given us everything that we need to be made right with God. So we have a lot of imagery here. So I, I want to give you a very condensed systematic theology. I, I just have a paragraph here. And then we'll apply it. So these are words that Paul uses, and I want to explain what they mean. The first one, salvation. He speaks of salvation. Normally people say, well, salvation is just I get to go to heaven when I die. Well, sorry, Mr. Reductionistic person. That's not really a very robust biblical answer. Salvation describes the future deliverance and rescue of God's people from some terrible fate. So God's wrath, hell, those, those types of things, punishment, etc. <laughs> when you think of salvation, you should think, oh boy, Pharaoh's coming. There's this huge body of water. We're toast. What does God do? He saves. He rescues. Not only did he get Israel through the Red Sea, he also conveniently collapsed the walls of the water on Pharaoh and his armies. And a side note for the kids who like archaeology or adults, um, they've found <laughs> chariots and stuff um, in the sea giving historical um, evidence. So that's salvation, God's mighty deliverance from some terrible fate. Two, glorification. Glorification, and he'll speak of this later, is the restoration of the image of God in man and his calling to serve as God's vice regent in the world. This is a status. So you in Christ have, you have been glorified and you are yet to be glorified. Uh, we are still in a body of death. We, we need resurrection. But we have a down payment of that in that the image of God has been restored. We had the image of God, it was lost. Now it's restored in Christ. So that's glorification. Three, resurrection. 
Okay, resurrection is life after life after death. <laughs> life after life after death. That's an N.T. Wright-ism. Life after life after death. We think, oh, I die, I go to heaven, we sing Kumbaya forever, and the naked baby angels bring, around, bring s'mores around and we just have a good time. No, there's life after life after death. So heaven is more of a hotel with wonderful amenities, by the way. But that's not the final stop. The final stop is a glorified, resurrected, uh, purified earth. And that's the new heavens, the new earth. So four, justification. Remember justification. Justification is the future vindication that we get at the final day of judgment that has been brought forward in the present by faith in the faithful Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus was vindicated. He was declared right. Why? Because he died and was raised. And that's our paradigm. We were dead and we were raised with Christ. So his justification is our justification because we are in him. It's as though the final day of judgment has already come for the believer. We've been justified. And then lastly, and we'll close out our systematic theology lesson, reconciliation. Reconciliation, and that's in verse 11 here is the peace between two parties that had been at odds and at enmity with each other. So all of this is, it's like an artwork. Paul has this wonderful array of tools to give us a visual on what salvation is. So that's our text. Let's apply it. <clears throat> and we're going to have fun with it this morning. I promise. At the center of Paul's explication of the victory of Christ and not just the victory of Christ, but the subsequent spoils of that victory, is this reminder. We stand entirely within God's vindication of the faithful Messiah, and not only are we reconciled and redeemed, we are transformed as well. We stand in that paradigm. So Christ, we, we, we died with Christ, we were buried with Christ, we were raised with Christ. That's the paradigm. You only stand in his grace because Jesus stood, not you. So no more boasting. Any of you that may have thought later, I'm going to go home and boast about myself. You shouldn't. You can't. Okay? So the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord and King, thus reduces all human boasting to nothing. None of us have this badge of do-goodism that has earned us any amount of anything. <laughs> so just don't forget that. So apart from Christ, we, we have no boast, no rejoicing. We have no swank. We have no swagger. We have nothing to boast about because all we do is all we bring is sin. So our only standing, the only way we sit up straight in the kingdom is because God vindicated Jesus. That's it. Jesus died on the, on the cross, which was a transaction that brought a truckload of blessings to the people of God. He died on a cross. He was buried. And on which day, children, did Christ rise from the dead? The third day. Good work, Allie. You got it. So on the third day, he was raised to new life. He was vindicated. Uh, and by the way, when we say Christ was vindicated, we mean that he was proven right. Because he knew all along he was going to Jerusalem. He set his face to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to have a clash 
with the religious leaders. He knew the cross was where it was going. He even prayed the night before, Father, if this cup can pass, you know, please. And, but not my will, your will, which is a perfect paradigm, by the way, for prayer. Not my will, but your will. <laughs> Again, no boasting. So he knows the cross is coming, and so he goes to it anyway, and then God raised him from the dead, Christ raised himself from the dead, and the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. All biblical, by the way. The Trinity was at work, and Christ was proven to be right. He was vindicated in the Spirit. That's 1 Timothy 3.16. So the actions of Christ brought about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, and following in its wake is us. Following, It's like Jesus... He's, we're on the lake of grace, and he's in the boat driving, having a great time. And here we are in the wake. That's us. We come behind on the inner tube, squealing in joy. It's a great day. So we're in the wake. We are the redeemed and transformed people of God. So with that said, the question that I want to explore for the rest of our time is this. Now that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, what does it look like for him to lead his people to victory? Now that Christ has been raised from the dead, what does it look like for him to lead his people into victory? If Christ is victorious, and that's what the resurrection proves, what can the world throw at at God? Death. They threw death at Christ. What did he do? Drank it down and said, ha, good try. You don't get any more victorious than that. So if Christ is victorious, that's the resurrection, and we've been brought into the spoils of victory, we are the spoils of victory, then how are we supposed to function? What might this look like? One thing Paul focuses on here is the issues of trials and tribulations, and since none of you ever deal with those, I guess we could skip it. Trials, difficulties, snarls, distresses are all realities we face. And yet, these are realities that will be eventually shackled and fettered and sentenced to death. There will be a time of peace. No more tears, no more sorrow. The culmination of the ages. So so Jesus has won the victory. We stand in him and in his victory. And yet, like him, we may suffer. We may experience Braxton Hicks, the bad kind. Is there any good kind? I don't know. See, for for the Christian, suffering is always unto victory. For the Christian, suffering is always unto victory. For the unbeliever, though, suffering is always unto further dismay. Suffering is always... that's uh, That's why unbelievers can't handle statism real well and oppression. So we think the only answer is just burn things. (laughs) But they don't realize that that's the system that's caused all these issues. So it's like, uh, hi, I'm running for president, and we're the problem, but I promise to fix the problem. Okay, no, but good try. So suffering for for the unbeliever is always further dismay, further uh, confounding. No one knows what to do. Unbelievers don't have the victory. So whenever they talk about politics or economics or, or what have you, whenever they speak to issues that have no grounding whatsoever in the Word of God, it's akin to them flaunting their home run championship on the t-ball field. Nice. There's no real victory in that. But in the meantime, during those hiccups, 
and the bruises, the snares, the trials sometimes, when you're not sure how you're going to pay your bills, when you're not you know, sure you understand what's, what's going on in the world around you. In those times, our job is to place our focus where it ought to be. And let me give you a, a piece of, of wisdom for free. Uh, it isn't complaining when things get tough. That's not the right answer. Nor is it retreating when things don't go the way that you should. Okay, the, this massive problem of statism. What has the church done? <laughs> Retreated. It's laughable. Actually, it's painful. I go back and forth on those two feelings. <laughs> so we need a proper boast in the tribulation because the world's redemption doesn't come about by ease and comfort. It's not as though God, if everything were lollipops and rainbows and care bears, then we wouldn't need to be rescued in the first place. But what happened? Sin happened. Sin happened in the world. So we need to celebrate the right things. We need to celebrate the right things. And we especially need to celebrate the right things in the midst of a whole lot of bad things. You, you can tell a lot about a person's anchoring in Christ by how he or she responds to the bumps in the roads of life. If you assume that a particular difficulty is an inherent result because God is this malevolent dictator who <laughs> he just wants you to suffer. He loves it when you fall down, when you fall, when you fall down and bruise your knee. He just laughs. If that's what you think about God our Father, then I submit to you that you are no longer anchored in Christ, but are instead drifting off into the sea of your own autonomy. You simply must have a proper boast in the tribulation, in the suffering, otherwise you're adrift. And the man on an inner tube in the middle of the ocean might at first think himself to be quite free, but not for very long. Reality will set in. Oh no, I'm in the middle of the ocean. Now, those who believe in Jesus Christ are the true people of the Creator God, and that's the very same God of Abraham. That's been Paul's point all along. So to boast in God is to celebrate the victory of Christ as he brings about reconciliation between the Creator and the creation. That's the problem of Romans 1. The problem of Romans 1 is now fixed in Christ. So therefore, we boast in Jesus, not Caesar. That's part of his point. We boast in the justice of God in Christ, not the justice, the pretend justice of, of Caesar. So this, of course, has caused many problems for a great deal of Christians in the first century. Um, when you don't fall over Caesar like a fangirl at a Bieber concert, then you raise the ire of the state. If you don't just bow to every whim that the state says, well, they don't like that. They don't like that. So Paul's admonition here, is, and I mentioned this earlier, is a showdown between two different ways of peace. Rome's justitia, or, or, or the dikaiosene theiu, the, the righteousness of God, the justice of God. Those are the options. So there, think of it this way. There is a peace which comes through the iron fist of Roman dominance and subjugation, what we call a false peace, what we call statism today, and then there's a peace which comes through the gift of the Holy Spirit, and only one of those actually works in the world. 
See, the Bible calls us ministers of reconciliation, which means that we are people who bring about the good news of Christ and what that good news of Christ brings to the world, namely the peace of God. And right now our nation is split. We have a gaping gash right now, a massive head wound. To switch metaphors, the blender is on high, someone took the lid off. That's our nation. Stuff is flying everywhere. We're not, not only are we in the midst of this so-called pandemic, we're in the midst of a whole lot of injustice in the streets, uh, just generally, whether that's shooting unarmed people who haven't gone to court and or burning down someone's property because, oh, they have insurance. Thanks. Now my premium's through the roof. Whatever it is, we're in the midst of this ginormous reckoning in our nation. And just a reminder, a presidential election isn't going to just automatically fix the problem. I said earlier that for the Christian, suffering is always unto victory. And for the unbeliever, suffering is always unto further dismay. Right now, there is a whole lot of pent-up angst because people are turning to something other than Christ. Anxiety and fear are at an all-time high. And just had this conversation with a friend last night. What, what, and during this time, what has the church done? Well, gone and hidden themselves behind masks and stay-at-home orders. And I jokingly said to my friend last night, might as well pull it over your eyes, too, and play the old toddler game. I can't see you, therefore you can't see me. La, 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 everything will be okay someday. See... It's astounding yet predictable to me that churches decided to simply bow to the whims of the state and the Dr. Kings. It's astounding because I never, I never thought I would see it. Probably you didn't either. No one in 2019 was like, hang on, 2020 is going to be crazy. No one thought that. And then here we are. So it's, it's astounding to me in that regard, but it's also predictable because... We've all known for a while now that the, the, the ministry industrial complex has become insufferably irrelevant. It's, it's like the church worked itself out of a job in one fell swoop. As if the kingdom ever stops or closes down. My friend Ron pointed this out a few weeks ago. He says, why is it the churches can rarely agree on anything? But when the state comes in and says, close your doors, they all shut down. Oh, we can agree on that. There's something there. Why is that? Well, I think it's because churches have become irrelevant. By and large, they have become irrelevant. Injustice is rampant right now. And the ministers of reconciliation are nowhere to be found. And why did... Why did pastors and churches and Christians, by and large, submit themselves to a mask mandate and then call it loving your neighbor? What is that? Because I I mean, I'm pretty sure everybody in this room thought, Man, that's weird. But why did it happen? Why did it happen? Here's why. Here's my answer. Because it was easy. It was easy. It's easy to say that you're loving your neighbor by adopting phony science and strapping a mask to your face. It's easy, but you know what's hard? Preaching Christ in the town square, preaching Christ to your neighbor, preaching Christ at an abortion mill. That's hard. 
Preaching Christ to the civil magistrates. That's hard. Instead of taking up our crosses and moving towards the afflicted, the church has taken up their pillows, laid down on the couch, and told the Lord to wake them when 2020 is over. And that is the judgment, by the way. That's the judgment. If, if unconditional submission to the state has proven anything, it has proven that the church has zero interest in the things of the kingdom of God. Zero. I mean, well, already we've been pulling our hairs out for a while, some of us for a while now, with the pathetic response to the abortion holocaust. But, but then this piled on top of it? What is the purpose of the victory of Christ if it's not the establishment of justice and righteousness on the earth? Tell me. That's what I want to know. What is the purpose of the victory of Christ if it's not for the end of the establishment of the justice and righteousness of God on the earth? What is the purpose? We've been declared in the right, Paul says. Now we have peace. We have access to the fountains of grace and we drink freely. There's no cover charge. You just go there. So we can endure suffering. This is, I'm just summarizing here. We can endure suffering because God actually has a purpose for it and he actually does something in the suffering. It's not fatalism, meaningless, this impersonal yin-yang situation where, oops, well, things just go bad. You know, go explore nirvana and empty your mind and maybe drink some tea. I don't know. He says... We were weak. We were unable to save ourselves. So Christ died. He didn't die for me, a good person. And he didn't die for you, a good person. He died for the ungodly, which is all of us. We've been saved by Christ from the much-deserved wrath of God. We've been reconciled. That's Romans 5, 1 through 11. So what? What is the purpose of it all? The purpose of it is the establishment in the establishing of justice and righteousness on the earth. That's, that's what it's for. That's what it's for. God gives you these things to set you free, to put you right side up in an upside down world, and the purpose is to make the world go from upside down to right side up. That's the point. You're given all of this stuff so that the grace of God could be worked in you and then out of you and into the world. And note the emphasis of the passage. God gives us peace. Remember that peace is a fruit of the Spirit because it is His to give. It's His to give. It's a fruit of the Spirit because God gives peace. All right? God is at peace with Himself. There is no disorder in the Trinitarian Godhead. If there was, we'd be in trouble. We'd have a problem. If Jesus had one plan, the Father had another, that's, a, you know, that's called ripping apart the universe. <laughs> There's no disorder in the Trinity. There's no confusion in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are at peace. There is love. There is joy. There is peace. There is patience. There is kindness. There is goodness. There's gentleness and there's self-control all within the Trinity. By the way, you might be thinking, why is he talking about the Trinity? Because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned in these 11 verses. So, when... and. <laughs> So and when, God, when God threw his words on the canvas of creation in order to manifest his glory in the creation, he threw all of those things in there with it. It's always his to give. It's God's to give. No state can give you freedom. 
No governor can grant you liberty. No, it's not possible. Only God gives it. And, for example, he gives his peace because Christ, our Prince of Peace, has come to establish this peace in the world. The work of the Trinity is a work of peace, the work of love, the work of joy, self-control, and so on. And it's God's work from top to bottom and start to finish, beginning to end. God in Christ has reconciled you to the God of peace through the Prince of Peace so that the Spirit of Peace could make you... A peacemaker. See the train of thought. See, it's our job not to be quiet about it either. Our, the world right now is groping around in the darkness of self-delusion without love, without joy, without peace, without Christ. And you, dear Christian, have been brought to Christ to receive all of this, not so you could hoard it to yourself, not so you could, well, we'll just, you know, wear our mask and be quiet and We'll just say, oh, woe is me. We're, we're the church. There's nothing we can do. No, he didn't give you that, so that would be your response. He gave it to you so you can take the victory of Christ into the world because the world needs it. The world needs this victory, and so we must go. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in everything you have given us. And because Christ is everything, we can say confidently, you have given us everything. We pray for peace. We pray for love. We pray for joy in the midst of a whole lot of, of darkness, of self-delusion. Uh, there are so many warring ideologies right now going on. And it's disappointing that the Church of Jesus Christ didn't step up, but instead relegated themselves to practical non-existence. And we pray that your spirit of peace would give us a fresh awakening of that peace so that we can be peacemakers in the world. Father, I thank you for the Apostle Paul who penned these words under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, who sent this to the church at Rome. And here we are 2,000 years later reading this letter, gleaning from that wisdom and asking for you to do a work in us. So we are thankful for the reconciliation we have in Christ. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would help us be ministers of reconciliation in the world. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.